This is episode 174 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Functional Human Brain Models of Disease with Dr. Sergio Pasca. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Daylon James and Dr. Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. We try to pick top stem cell researchers to interview on the podcast, but we want to know who you want to hear. If you know anyone that would make a great guest, send us your suggestions at info at stemcellpodcast.com and we'll follow up. Today we have Dr. Sergio Pasca from Stanford University on the podcast to talk about his work developing functional human brain models of disease. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news coming right up. But first, Stem Cell Technologies would like to introduce their one-stop resource for researchers who are using or looking to use organoids in their experiments, something we talk about almost every single podcast, right? Stem Cell's Organoid Information Hub provides scientists with instructional videos, educational webinars, expert interviews, technical tips, and curated publications to help researchers set up and optimize organoids as a research model in their labs. So learn more about organoid culture from the experts at Stem Cell and visit www.stemcell.com slash discover dash organoids. We're going to talk about a pure stem cell paper, not as much application in this first story. It's a pure pluripotency paper. I know some of you out there are big fans of pluripotency and are less inclined to talk about the applications of stem cell biology just because there's so much to still learn about when it comes to the regulating the process of pluripotency. So Dr. Martin Para, if you're out there listening, this one's for you. Chaperone-mediated autophagy regulates the pluripotency of embryonic stem cells. This is a science paper coming from first author Yi Shu, last author Xiaolu Yang. And this is from the uh, Perelman School of Medicine over there in UPenn. So we know this, there's this self-eating process in embryonic stem cells and pluripotent stem cells in general that's known as chaperone-mediated autophagy, or CMA. And there's a metabolite that this paper has identified that might actually serve as potentially a therapeutic target to help repair or regenerate you know, cells and but that's kind of looking at the big picture downstream. This is really a pluripotency story, first and foremost. So, of course, you can derive all sorts of cell types from embryonic stem cells and iPSCs. But this study is looking at, for the first time, uh, how this chaperone-mediated autophagy, this self-eating process that almost all cells undergo to kind of maintain cellular function, chaperone-mediated autophagy at low levels can actually promote self-renewal and enhance pluripotency. It's when this uh, stem cell is ready to differentiate, you know, into whatever cell type you're interested in, you get a, there's a switch that happens. And the suppression of chaperone-mediated autophagy at the pluripotent level at low levels is really activated. So the switch is turning on chaperone-mediated autophagy to help differentiate pluripotent stem cells into specialized cells. And this is conserved across all different types of differentiation, whether you're going towards mesoderm, endoderm, ectoderm, you're getting an activation of chaperone-mediated autophagy. What these folks found is that 
the chaperone-mediated autophagy activity is kept at a minimum due to a couple of cellular factors that are clitor- you know, critical for pluripotency. Uh, OCT4 and SOX2, these transcription factors that every stem cell biologist knows about, right? They actually suppress another gene called LAMP2A, which is providing instructions for making a protein called lysosomal-associated membrane protein 2, LAMP2. And this is a protein that's critical for chaperone-mediated autophagy. And so, again, at the pluripotent level, you have a minimal level of CMA activity. And this is allowing your stem cells to maintain high levels of OCT4, SOX2, and also alpha-ketoglutarate, a metabolite that's critical to actually reinforce the pluripotent state. And so this is that translational element. The, the one translational element of this story is the identification of this metabolite uh, that m- may be critical to maintaining stem cell pluripotency in the context of CMA. And again, when it's time to, for differentiation, the cells start to upregulate CMA, the chaperone-mediated autophagy, due to a reduction in OCT4 and SOX2. And this is actually leading to a degradation of key enzymes that's responsible for the production of alpha-ketoglutarate. And this is, again, leading to a drop in the alpha-ketoglutarate levels and also activation of other cellular pathways and activities that promote differentiation. So bottom line, it's showing that uh, chaperone-mediated autophagy and this alpha-ketoglutarate intermediate is dictating the really the fate of pluripotent stem cells. And it's, it, it's a cool story because it's connecting metabolism to pluripotency. That's not something that's talked about a whole lot. We often just focus on the transcription factors, right? We focus on OCT4, SOX2, these canonical factors that are known to regulate pluripotency and enhance iPSC and ESC uh, cell maintenance. But really, there's this whole other element of autophagy and the metabolism of these cells that's also critically important to maintain their pluripotency. And there's also certainly a link to the to the epigenetics too. Um, so I thought it was a neat story. It's uh, it's a pure stem cell story, a pure pluripotency story. Something that doesn't get too much love on the podcast, but uh, but certainly there's still a lot of work that has to happen in figuring out the basic mechanisms of pluripotency. And hey, there is a translational element here. My thought is, what if you wanted to enhance pluripotency in your cultures? Maybe you'd be able to hyperactivate alpha-ketoglutarate or suppress CMA, this chaperone-mediated autophagy, through a small molecule. So uh, so it's a fun story to talk about. Yeah, it's, it's very basic. Um, and I'm not going to lie, you're describing it and I'm getting a little bit confused because it goes deep, <laughs> uh, which is no disservice to your description. It's more that I'm just a simp, but, um, the, the, you said it, I mean, there are applications and, and, you know, you talk about recipes and how we can make our cultures better and make self-renewal better and more robust. Um, and also the other side of that too, right? If this, to me, it seems like if it's, if it's global and fundamental to differentiation, all germ layers, are kind of this is the the um, the bottleneck that you might be able to not just you know suppress this in order to you know promote self renewal, but you might be able to kind of prime the cells, get them all piled up at this bottleneck, and then release that block and have a kind of uniform differentiation down a specific germ layer. So yeah, like like you said, this is a basic pure science pluripotency story, all that stuff. But at the end of the day. You can incorporate this into pretty much any 
uh, regenerative uh, paradigm that's based on in vitro differentiation of, of pluripotent stem cells. So it's a, it's a big deal. It's a science paper, not for no reason. Yeah, hey, don't hate on the pure basic science, Dalon. This is where all the translational good stuff comes from, right? And like I talked about, there is a translational element here, and you touched on it, right? Maybe if we want to enhance the differentiation of our pluripotent stem cells into the ectodermal, mesodermal, or endodermal lineages, it's all about regulating metabolism. That's a, It's a whole new world that we haven't looked into. Yes, it's an entry point, and you know sometimes it's like that. You have a new idea that breaks through. Metabolomics kind of revolutionized our appreciation of of everything, but in vitro culture in particular. Another seminal idea uh, was the idea of there is regeneration. There are uh, there is new uh, neo neo neurogenesis in the brain. You know the dogma going back for ever. Uh, was that the the brain is kind of terminally differentiated. There's no expansion in neural cells in the brain up until Jonas Friesen, you know, more than 25 years ago now at the Karolinska Institute came out with the seminal idea that there is, uh, there are a self-renewing population of stem cells within the brain, but it was just an idea, okay? It was a hypothesis and it's the way he proved it that was so revolutionary in these seminal experiments that used carbon dating and based on how, you know, the, the nuclear testing in the atmosphere, he was able to actually pinpoint um, cell turnover in the brain, and he went on to do it in the heart also, and he spent his career since trying to kind of untangle and decipher the mechanisms by which this uh, new cell turnover in the brain and other regions takes place. Um, and part of that work, you know, it's been shown that uh, in response to injury, that these neural stem cells, they persist, and these are the uh, subventricular zone um, neural stem cells, and they generate glia, they generate also a minor proportion of neurons in the context of injury. But it's also been shown that astrocytes in the injured cortex can display neural stem cell-like properties, okay, in vitro. Also in humans and mice, also in mice, when you do this, some kind of these injuries, cerebral artery occlusion or excitotoxic damage, Astrocytes can give rise to new neurons even in vivo, right? And these are these so-called parenchymal astrocytes, okay? They're not localized to the subventricular zone. It's a cell that's in a lot, it's throughout the brain. But it's, it's unknown whether or not this in vitro potential in human or in vivo potential in mice is conserved really in the context of injury in humans and throughout the brain. Um, so it's been previously shown that these striatal astrocytes after stroke, uh, the, the neoneurogenesis there is triggered by a reduction in notch signaling, all right? And that alone, even without injury, if you do conditional deletion of these notch signaling effectors, you can get this expansion of the astrocytes. But whether or not this program matches the, the neural stem cells in the subventricular zone, if it matches that kind of canonical program, is unknown. Uh, so what Jonas Friesen and his group did at the Karolinska in this paper, it's a cell stem cell paper, is they use single cell RNA-seq to show with high resolution that in the context of this not signaling block, um, that the astrocytes transition to a bona fide neural stem cell-like state. Um, and they also showed that using all this trajectory and pseudotime analysis, you could uncouple astrocyte neurogenesis from this other thing called reactive gliosis, um, show that they occur in independent branches. So there's kind of this bifurcation there. 
And finally, they show that that cortical neurogenesis um, from the astrocytes, it, it, in, on a molecular level, it precisely recapitulates the uh, canonical subventricular zone neurogenesis, okay? So with very high fidelity, essentially showing that this thing, and this is the big deal of this, showing that this phenomenon that we thought was really localized to the subventricular zone may be present throughout the, the brain in these parenchymal astrocytes, which is, a, I think, a big deal in terms of the potential for endogenous regeneration of neurons uh, in the brain. So I don't know. I mean, Jonas Frizzani, he won't stop. He comes with a, a big idea. He comes with an amazing tool that people have been using. And now he's really teasing apart the mechanisms that mediate this, what people thought didn't exist. So uh, an, another uh, feather in his cap. Yeah, this is really cool stuff. I, I didn't realize this. This is Jonas Friesen, the, the same guy who uh, published a science paper back in 2009 looking at um, carbon dating to identify that less than 1% of the cardiomyocytes in your heart actually are turned over in, in, the, in adult mammals. So this is what uh, the Friesen lab has been doing for a, a very long time in a lot of different tissue types. So really cool to see him sticking with that particular story. One uh, specific aspect of the study that I wanted to talk about, this is a very specific type of injury that they're inducing in the brain here. And the, this whole study is in the context of an acute stab wound that's induced into the brain. And that's when you're actually getting this uh, neurogenesis uh, via the astrocytes, right? And so the natural question that I had is, are these mechanisms conserved across neurodegenerative disease, for example, right? So it's great to hear that if I have some sort of stab wound to my brain, some of my, there's going to be some neurogenesis that happens as a result of that, perhaps. But uh, I think uh, the remaining question is, what about in the context of these other diseases? Yes. Uh, people do get stabbed in the brain. I mean, it's not, That's I mean, true. It's, it's relatively uncommon, but it is an unmet need. <laughs> Um, I would think maybe we're talking about stroke, of course, here. Um, but yes, you raise a good point. Also, I would follow up by saying this is really in the context of this notch inhibition. So I don't know that we could enforce the notch inhibition. It's, it's feasible, plausible, but um, it's not only specific to the stabbed brain, but it's also specific <laughs> to uh, notch suppression. But uh, be that as it may, I think it, it's, it raises a very important question follow-up study, which is, in the context of a neurodegenerative condition, let's say a diseased brain, maybe the astrocytes have lost this capacity. So just from like a basic standpoint, maybe it'd be important to understand if that the, the loss of function or the loss of this latent capacity may be some aspect of the neurodegenerative condition. So as usual, the Frizen group is uh, raising more questions uh, while they're planting these seminal ideas. Frizen Group, really experts in cell turnover there, really neat story that's following their trajectory of, you know, that's kind of what they're focusing on for the last X number of years. Really, really cool to, to talk about there. We're going to shift gears a little bit before coming back to the brain. We're going to talk about uh, the skin for a second in a nature paper that actually just came out, looking at the mechanisms of stretch-mediated skin expansion at the single cell resolution. First author here is Maria Celeste Aragona, and uh, this is coming from the lab of 
Cedric Blompain over there in Brussels, Belgium. So we know that the cells of our bodies are exposed to a ton of different mechanical forces, right? Compression, shear, stretching, and they have to resist those forces to actually maintain tissue integrity and even stem cell function. And the famous example is, of course, the skin. The skin is pretty elastic. It can stretch and respond to stretch forces by expanding. And actually, doctors have really used this response of the skin for decades now, implanting different devices in the skin that can cause tissue expansion for, say, like, I don't know, like plastic surgery or even to repair birth defects. But the the question here is how that mechanical strain and stretch actually ends up creating new tissue. And that's uh, that's something that hasn't really been well established until now. So now these folks over in, in Belgium are showing some evidence that at the molecular and single cell level, stem cells in the skin, and this is a mouse model, they can actually sense and communicate this stretch, this biomechanical stretch, to actually create new tissue. Of course, uh, the, the stem cells of the skin are partially found in the epidermal regions, which is the, the outer coating of the, the skin. And to ensure lifelong protection, the epidermis has to constantly renew, right? And so there's stem cells in the basal layer of the epidermis that are, that are doing the job. The renewals is, is balanced with differentiation and the movement of these stem cells to actually create the, the barrier-forming layer of the epidermis. And uh, ultimately, this barrier-forming the layer is shed from the surface of the skin, which is replaced by new cells. So, of course, stem cells have a critical role to play here. So they're figuring out how this epidermis is actually responding to the to the strain. And the, the thought is this mechanism is going to be conserved across mammalian species. So you might be able to uh, get an understanding of how this happens in humans as well. So they actually uh, – the whole um, – the, the tool that was used here was pretty neat. It was a self-inflating hydrogel that they uh, – it's a device that's actually used in human surgery sometimes. They implanted this under the skin of the mice, and they examined the indicators of force perception, including changes in cell shape, the structure of alpha-catenins, which are, of course, a pretty famous mechanosensitive protein. And also the network of different carotene proteins that uh, provides the cells with this mechanical um, resilience, right? And so they found that the epidermal stem cells actually can indeed, you know, sense and respond to the strain. There is an increase in stem cell division actually followed by a thickening of the epidermis. So the stem cell renewal is promoting differentiation. And so you actually have two simultaneous effects here that are happening to maintain this functional barrier at the same time that the skin is being generated and the stretch is happening. And they, of course, did a bunch of genetic analysis as well, basically ablating certain pathways that may be responsible for this. One of the pathways that was actually really critical in this process was, uh, was, was the HIPPO-YAP pathway which they, they examined in mice that are lacking uh, some components of the pathway and that uh, this regeneration wasn't able to, to happen as much. So a fundamental 
study, a fundamental observation of something that is very translationally oriented in, in skin regeneration and the idea of using stretch to actually restore skin function. And a, a few pretty famous pathways and a few pretty famous uh, signaling mechanisms are conserved to actually make this a reality. A neat basic science study, again, you know, coming back to the autophagy story, another basic science study that has translational potential. Yeah, and I saw buried there at the, the end of the paper uh, a note there in the discussion that some of these same pathways are activated during uh, embryogenesis and like pancreas development um, and other organs suggesting that like the, 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 all these regulators, the role is conserved in this mechanotransductive process in embryogenesis as well as in the adult. So I think it's not just the link of like translational in terms of adult tissue in the skin, but I feel like there's fundamental insights here that apply across all organogenesis. And I'm not surprised. You know, Cedric Blompin was in uh, Elaine Fuchs' lab as a postdoc when I was there during my doctoral dis dissertation training. And he's the nicest guy ever. And he always goes right, right to the root, right to the, to the fundamental question. And uh, he's been amazingly productive in, in the last decade since he went to Brussels. I mean, he has about one to two nature papers. <laughs> a year, um, plus others. So another great piece of work from him. I'm impressed. Who don't you know, Daylon? It seems like you know everybody in the stem cell yeah, well, field. You're I'm, just so popular, aren't I'm you? Not po they don't know me, Arun. They don't know me. That's the problem. Um, but I know them. I know uh, a another thing, and that's uh, Sergio Pasca is about to come through and blow our minds with his work. Uh, so we're going to you know, have a bit of a nod to neural uh, in this final roundup story. Um, also optogenetics, which he, he uses to great effect. So this is a nice segue. Uh, this is a story about neural stem cell grafts in the context of spinal cord injury. So spinal cord injury is one of the most visible representations of the potential of stem cell research, you know, 20 years ago now. So um, it's nice to come back around on that. Uh, and although, you know, there's experimental approaches that have been used and can succeed, I guess, moderately in promoting uh, endogenous regeneration. Um, so taking endogenous axons or neurons and, and inducing uh, axonal regeneration into the site of injury, even beyond the site of injury. But the amount of axons that, you know, move on that and the distance is pretty weak. All right, we're talking like a handful, hundreds of axons regenerate. The distance we're talking about like one to two millimeters, which, you know, that's a lot. It's a lot of microns, but the spinal cord, we're talking the scales we're talking about, you know, we need, we need longer distance. Um, but on the other hand, when you take neural progenitor cells or neural stem cells, you implant them into the site of spinal cord injury, you get extensive host axon regeneration, right? You get extension into the distal host spinal cord, a lot of numbers. We're talking 10,000, hundreds of thousands of axons, and they're going distances up to like 50 millimeters, okay? So this is a scale we're talking about that we need. Um, so we know that in these graphs, uh, these host axons regenerate into the graphs. They form synaptic contact, contacts into the, into the graft neurons, okay? So the host axons connect with the graft neurons. We know this. Um, we know that they're also capable of generating postsynaptic currents. However, what we don't know is how the host axons regenerating into the graphs connect and become 
synaptically organized, okay? We haven't really put our finger on that. Um, to gain insight into that, Mark Tuzensky Lab at uh, UCSD, to, to look into like the, the nature of that synaptic connectivity and functionality in the context of regeneration, um, they use optogenetics uh, to stimulate the host corticospinal axons that were regenerating into the NPC graft. So these are neural progenitor cells that they put in, and they looked with optogenetics at the host axons going into the grafts, okay? Um, and what they found was that this optogenetic stimulation elicited distinct and segregated neural network responses throughout the graft, okay? And the stimulation of graft-derived axons extending from the graft into the spinal cord also then triggered uh, a local neuronal network response of the host neurons. All right. And finally, and this is the big deal, they use in vivo calcium imaging to show that the graft neurons respond to sensory stimuli, okay, delivered to the host. This is including light touch, pinch, and limb movement. So, I mean, this is kind of a nuts and bolts kind of study, I guess you could say, but they use the highest end tool, highest end tools to show that there's the, these, these graphs functionally integrate with the host spinal and supraspinal neuron populations. And that the connectivity there, synaptic connectivity, it resembles the physiological patterns of the projections in a normal spinal cord. So we've come a long way. You know, this is like 15 years odd now since we had uh, Hans Kirstead famously showing that there is recovery of the rat spinal cord and you could get some recovery of function. And then Geron picking that up and that was a bit of a debacle. Um, and the idea there was, yeah, we got these cells, we know they're neural we're going to put them in and people are going to walk again. But now we're, we've taken that to the level where, you know, we're doing what we should have been doing from the beginning, which is looking at these things, seeing if they work, seeing the connectivity and, and, and proving uh, that they are functional before we start shooting them into human spinal cords. Yes, spinal cord injury is one of the foundational issues in stem cell biology in terms of the uh, the diseases that we hope to address in this field. And like you said, this has been a focus of our field for the last couple of decades. You, you mentioned Jaron there. You know, there's other folks who are looking at all sorts of NPCs and neural neural cell types that you might be able to use to restore spinal cord function after an acute injury, such as like a car accident, for example. And this is, again, very foundational for establishing CIRM, right? The mm. California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. There are a lot of very high profile uh, cases of spinal cord injury that CIRM was using and um, employing to help obtain funding when you know, Prop 71 was being proposed like 15-ish years ago. So we know that uh, this has been a focus of the field, but I think, the, like you said, the real exciting part about this paper is the functional element. You're functionally showing that some of these NPC graphs are restoring spinal cord function uh, through next-gen technologies like calcium imaging and in particular optogen optogenetics, which is a perfect transition into our guest today, Dr. Sergio Pasca. Optogenetics is, of course, a really revolutionary technology in, in the field of neuroscience where you can use light to stimulate 
uh, neural circuitry. This is actually partially developed by the lab of Carl Dysroth, also at Stanford. So using really cutting-edge technology to address a, a pretty powerful question in spinal cord repair. Great story. Yes, a great story. And at the end of the day, it's really just the idea of, you know, this patch works. It connects above and it connects below the injury. And now I think showing that connectivity, it's really just a matter of scale. You know, we talk about tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of axons. I mean, it sounds like a lot and it is, but we need to scale it up, I think, if we're going to get people fully recovered, well, not even fully recovered, but to show some recovery and uh, restoration of connectivity in these you know, real acute spinal cord injury. So a big story, a lot of tools out of California, just like our next guest. But before we get to that, I have a message from stem cell. Neuroscientists looking for more predictive power in their disease models are increasingly adopting human pluripotent stem cells in their research. Stem cell technologies offers products, protocols, and training to support HPSC-derived neural models. Explore their collection of technical videos and webinars on neurological disease, modeling by visiting www.stemcell.com slash neural disease model. All right, you guys, we have an exciting guest for this episode. He was presenting at the ISSCR 2020 about assembloids. Wowed the whole crowd. It's a pleasure to have with us today, Dr. Sergio Pasca, Associate Professor, Stanford Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, also the Bonnie Witengu and Family Director of the Stanford Brain Organogenesis Program. Dr. Pasca, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really great to be here and talk to you guys. Well, it's great to have you again. Uh, I cannot say enough how much we've been looking forward to this. Let me jump in by talking about, you know, your arc. You're now a major player in the IPSC and organoid landscape. Some might say a pioneer. I would say a pioneer. But your start in science, or perhaps what led you to IPS stem or pluripotent stem cell research to begin with, was your interest in understanding and treating neurodevelopmental disorders, particularly autism spectrum disorder. Can you give us an overview of the potential of stem cells in this space, uh, and what major strides have been made in recent years, and what are the limitations uh, for kind of cell-based research? Uh, in in treating these neurodevelopmental disorders, you know, I'm I'm a physician by training, and so my interest has really been in understanding the biology of neuropsychiatric disorders, in particular, neurodevelopmental disorders such as autism and schizophrenia. And I guess the main challenge that we have in this field, where we really haven't had like any therapeutic breakthroughs in like you know decades, um, uh, the main challenge there is really access to human tissue from patients. And by access from human brain tissue from patients, I really mean access at the molecular and cellular level. Because I think in, in psychiatry and to some extent in neurology as well, unlike probably any other branch of medicine, our access to uh, the organ of interest uh, is incredibly limited. And it's incredibly limited also during development. If you think about it, right, the human brain development, it's an incredibly long process. Uh, most of the things that we know about human brain development are at very early stages very often extrapolated from like animal models. But what makes the human brain unique, which happens you know, in the second, third trimester, the first few years after birth, is still to a large uh, extent uncharted. And so I guess it comes as no surprise that uh, you know, the biology of most of these neuropsychiatric disorders is very poorly understood. 
And I think that's where uh, stem cell technologies come into play because they offer, you know, together with other models, uh, um, animal models and postmortem tissue, an opportunity to recapitulate in vitro some aspects of human brain development and function. Um, very often in, is not in total, but in in um, in specific assays, and start to ask questions about biology uh, of disease. Yeah, so to get around some of those limitations of actually accessing brain tissues, you've, of course, resorted to using organoids and iPS-derived um, cortical organoids and so on. And actually, more recently, you've started working on assembloids, these collections of multiple organoids from different uh, tissue types, such as different portions of the brain. And so this is actually something Dalen mentioned in his introduction. Uh, this really blew the socks off a lot of people in the audience at the ISCR meeting. So we got to talk about this a little bit. So these assembloids are combinations of organoids from different tissue lineages. And there was really one type of assembloid that you talked about that I thought was just incredible, this corticospinal muscular assembloid. And you showed how you could stimulate the cortical portion of the assembloid and actually get a contractile response in the muscle, which is just wild. So talk about the potential of using some of these assembloids, these collections of different organoids, and the inspiration for the technology, and what other types of assembloids that you're working on and, and thinking about putting together. So, I mean, our, our initial work in the lab uh, was aimed at like just trying to derive organoids that resemble a very specific brain region, right? I mean, even even cell types before, like having three-dimensional cultures, that just deriving cell types of a specific brain region. But of course, one of the interesting things about the brain, uh, which is, I think, something that Pashko Rakic said like many years ago, is that um, you know most of uh, that 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 most of the cells in development do not reside in the place uh, in which they were born. So migration um, and extension of projections is almost uh, a, a rule rather than an exception in development. So the first assembly that we built uh, a number of years ago was precisely to try to model uh, this inaccessible aspect of human brain biology, which is the migration of interneurons from the ventral forebrain to the dorsal forebrain. And I think, you know, I think this is well known in neuroscience, but the 20% GABAergic neurons in the cortex are actually not born in the dorsal forebrain. They're born literally centimeters away in the human brain and have to migrate all throughout gestation. And actually in humans, it turns out up to the second year of life to arrive in the dorsal forebrain and connect with glutamatergic cells. So a few years ago, we first wanted to derive this re regions separately. So for instance, to just provide, um, you know, small molecules and growth factors that would allow early neural organoids or spheroids to become more like that region of the brain, which is the uh, ventral forebrain or the subpallium. And then once we specified them separately, we essentially just put them together in, um, in, in an Eppendorf tube, at the bottom of an Eppendorf tube. And if you actually leave them there for just like 24 or 48 hours, they fuse. I mean, it, it's funny thinking in retrospect how much planning went into that experiment. Uh, because when I opened my lab, I really thought that it's going to be super complicated. <laughs> that we're going to need all kinds of like bioengineering approaches to do that. Um, and we, you know, I had the students who worked on this and, and prepared all kinds of like in, you know, ingenious devices until somebody in the lab came and said, it's very simple. You just put them at the bottom and then up and you leave them there overnight. Next day they're fused. Um, and they're not just fused because the cells actually do start to migrate very soon after in the next few days. 
And so if you wait, for instance, for like three, four weeks, then you're just seeing, you just see like this massive migration of uh, cortical interneurons into the dorsal forebrain. Mm -hmm. And not only do they move, uh, there are some, um, uh, I, I guess, emergent properties of this migration, so to speak, because the cells are changed by their new environment. And once they arrive onto the other side, they activate a second program of, of, of maturation and integration to the circuit. Um, and so it, it's not just a simple migration. So in a way, inspired by that, we thought, could we actually model other aspects that, uh, um, other aspects of this crosstalk between brain regions? And of course, the main one is the, is the formation of circuits, long range connectivity. And so we have several of this assembloids uh, that we've been developing. Uh, none of them are published at this time, uh, but make them you know, even more exciting in a way. Um, but you know, the one that I've, I've shown a few weeks ago or a month ago was the one where we've developed a spinal cord-like organoid, uh, which actually one of the surprises there was that it recapitulates a lot of a diversity in the spinal cord beyond what we thought. Initially, we just wanted to make you know, a, a group of motor neurons. Um, but it turns out you get a, a much larger diversity of, of those uh, cells. And then you can, very similar with the cortex, you can just fuse them, put them together with the cortex. And then in this case, particularly the cortex starts projecting, uh, rather than migrating cells, this time you have projecting cells that go into the spinal cord within a few days and then within a few weeks, um, they essentially kind of like invade, so to speak, the spinal cord. We spend a lot of time like trying to see who is actually projecting, right? Because one big question here is like, what is the specificity of this process? Um, and we, so we spend a lot of time like seeing, you know, tracing back the cells with like rabies viruses. And it turns out that they seem to be the cells, the corticospinal projecting neurons uh, are the main population they're projecting. Um, and then of course, one of the things that we wanted to see are motor neurons, for instance, functional. Can the circuit be fully assembled? And so then uh, we also build a three-dimensional culture of human muscle that can be either derived from human myoblasts, from biopsies that can be differentiated, or from iPS cells. Aggregated again as a three-dimensional culture and fused as a third part to this assembloid. And then there again, like, you know, one of the surprises was that although, um, I'd say motor neurons are probably 10 to 20% of all the cells, 90% of all the cells that project to the muscle mm. are actually motor neurons. Mm. So there is some specificity there as well. And so initially we saw that there was like muscle contraction, spontaneous muscle contraction. You know that usually skeletal muscles don't contract spontaneously. They're not like cardiac muscles. And so that was like the first surprise to just like see. Um, uh, but then, you know, again, being neuroscientist and really being interested in, in probing the circuits and, and demonstrating that they're really functional, we spend a lot of time implementing all kinds of tools uh, from a, you know, modern neuroscience, uh, uh, to both probe and manipulate the circuit. So for instance, um, you know, we've done optogenetics and you can uh, put, for instance, uh, channel rhodopsin into the cortex and stimulate with light and indeed get like muscle contraction. But you can do the same thing um, with, um, you know, electrical stimulation or with glutamate uncaging. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, yeah, this, this has been really fun actually. Once we had the system, I guess the surprise in a way was, you know, that there is self-organization, right? I mean, you make this part separately and to see that the cells are finding each other um, uh, to some extent, because this is obviously like not the entire system in vitro, this is not the entire cortical spinal tract. So I, I think we should mis be misleading here in any way, but it does 
offer, I, I think, another opportunity um, to um, yeah to capture human biology in a dish and a start asking questions about disorders of this of of this circuit. Yes, and I mean you make it sound very simple, but then again on the back end there you talked about how the assay and the proof there is what takes all the work. Um, whereas you know putting these things together, it's just like uh, Lego blocks. Although I'm oversimplifying there, but I think it does make the point that there's kind of this, I don't want to call it emergent or appropriate your use of the word emergent, but there is this element of you put two things together and they form something else, right? And um, I think it underscores that there's unknown unknowns there. We put two things together, we imagine that it's going to take all kinds of bioengineering, but then it's, it takes care of itself, right? There's this intrinsic developmental potential and there's an impetus and a momentum there that is really not necessarily in our control, right? And with the organoids as you describe and these processes becoming more complex and maybe, I don't want to say close, but closer to these, you know, physiological processes, there's a lot of talk now about endpoints, right? And from an ethical standpoint, where do you stand on the ethics of these neural organoids? And do you think the idea, and this is, I think we got to work on our nomenclature here, you think the idea of mini brains with thoughts is like a sensationalist idea that the media has taken hold of and created a kind of hysteria where the science is really much simpler than that? Or do you think that that's kind of anticipating the inevitable, where we'll, we will ultimately be able to approximate these higher order neural processes in a assembloid? Okay. Well, let me walk back from your question. And first of all, you know, emphasize one more time why we're actually doing this, right? Because at um, and I'm not just talking about like organoids or assembloids, but even of using brain tissue, right, from patients, uh, all, all of these preparations that we collectively call brain surrogates, um, right? And the need for these brain surrogates is, again, because we don't really have very good models for studying the human brain. Uh, and the burden of neuropsychiatric disorders is tremendous. And progress has been very, very slow. So... Um, it, 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 in a way, we need better models that approximate the human brain. Now, obviously, the closer some of this model gets to approximating aspects of human brain function, the more uncomfortable we, we feel, right? And I think that's where some of the ethical concerns uh, have been raised. Now, I, um, first of all, I, 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 I don't like the term mini brains, and so I've been uh, you know, actively trying to, um, you know, encourage others not to use it because I think it's just simply not accurate for, uh, you know, the preparations that we and many others have been making. Um, uh, and it may be more appropriate probably for other organs, but for the brain, it, it definitely does not capture the essence of these cultures. And I think that was partly also the cause for some of the confusion. I think, you know, um, both in the scientific community, but even beyond uh, that in the public. Um, at the end of the day, these are still cells in a dish. Um, they, they do have self-organizing properties, uh, but they're far from being actual circuits or the actual human brain, right? I mean, there are so many things missing. I mean, we, you know, maybe we're focusing you know, very often on like the, the features that we are able to recapitulate, but there's so many features that we're not recapitulating, not just vascularization, let's say, or, you know, the presence of like immune cells and microglia. 
But, you know, for instance, uh, you know, like early, um, you know, forms of plasticity, like critical periods, sensory input, those are absolutely essential for shaping the circuits um, right in the way we think. And, and, and the most obvious one is like most of the parts of the circuits are not present in a dish. Even if you put two or three of them, you, you know, you don't have all the parts of that circuit. So I do think that we're still far away uh, from, um, you know, again, some, some of the images that have been depicted. Now, I do absolutely think that there needs to be a conversation about the ethical um, aspects of this work, which I, I, I think there already is, and there is a terrific group. So actually, when we organized the first Cold Spring Harbor meeting on brain organoids in 2017, uh, one of the key discussions uh, was precisely uh, the uh, ethical considerations. So we had uh, In Su Hyun, who came from uh, came to give a keynote, and 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 kind of like laid the ground for what are some of the discussions because it's not just about like the in vitro system, um, but it's also about the transplantation and the engraftment uh, and the chimeras, where I I think there are probably more ethical concerns right, related to those preparations. Um, um, and, and for instance, there are like very clear ethical concerns uh, with transplanting some of the brain organisms, for instance, in primates, right? I mean, I think that some, 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 some of these experiments are very clearly um, uh, concerning. And so uh, that, that's why it's, it's so wonderful to actually have many of these bioethicists uh, involved. And, and beyond the ethical concerns, there are also some legal concerns right? about like who owns, for instance, the cells. Um, right, so those, those cells are derived from an individual, and so you know, for instance, many of the discussions that we also have here in our human brain organogenesis program, uh, particularly with um, Hank Greeley here, are around, for instance, you know, some of the legal ethical concerns about like uh, ownership, for instance, of the cells and so on and so forth. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think it's wonderful that we actually do have already many ethicist and um, and lawyers involved in this conversation. Yeah, we're certainly so far away from fully recapitulating the complex circuitry found in the adult human brain. But like you said, it's it's important to have these conversations, not only with the, ethic, the ethicist, but also with the, the legal teams as well. So focusing a little bit more on the true, you know, current applications for these organoids, though, they're very powerful for studying brain function and, you know, uh, different neurological uh, processes in a dish, but also they're useful for studying development, right? So neurodevelopment. And your lab actually recently published an article in Science showing how you could use these four brain organoids to model chromatin accessibility dynamics during development and how these things actually shift. So tell us a little bit more about how this work came about, and in particular, what these shifts in chromatin accessibility in these brain organoids in vitro can tell us about how neurodevelopment, neurodevelopmental disorders can actually manifest in vivo. So the connection between the in vitro and in vivo. So actually, the uh, the long-term cultures were one of the primary goals in the beginning when we started this type of work. You know, most of my work, for instance, during my postdoc was in trying to model um, corticogenesis in the context of disease using conventional monolayer cultures. And as you probably know very well, one of the main challenges there is that you can keep the cells for like, you know, 10 weeks or so, um, maybe 12, maybe, you know, through heroic effort, you know, uh, over, o o over 12 weeks, let's say. 
the, the challenge becomes when you um, uh, try to capture later stages of corticogenesis because uh, uh, what happens is the cells start peeling away uh, after many of these replatings in monolayer, and then you can no longer really capture the second part of corticogenesis. And the timing, it turns out that even in you know conventional cultures, monolayer cultures, is actually well conserved. And so, you know, if you think, for instance, about the generation of the human cortex, making all the neurons in the cortex takes, you know, about 24 to 27 weeks. Um, so if you want to capture the generation of, of upper layer neurons, you really, really do need to keep these cultures for much longer. And actually, that was the entire motivation be, be, uh, beyond like us even developing some of the early models. We just wanted to keep them for longer. And we thought that because... Um, you know, uh, they were plated and the plating was always the problem. We thought that moving them to a low attachment plate would probably solve the problem. And that's how we essentially started using 3D cultures, uh, you know, many years ago. And in once we kind of like optimized the protocol and uh, characterized it, one of the questions was how long in development can we actually go if you keep them? And so... And uh, I think three years or so ago, we published the first paper um, where we kept them for about like 400, 500 days, uh, the cortical organoids that, so organoids that resembled the cortex, and then started characterizing glial cells. But now we wanted to look at both glial lineages and neuronal lineages, uh, both RNA and chromatin to really see how those transitions are happening. And, you know, there are uh, plenty of surprises. I mean, I, I would mention, you know, maybe two. One of them was we found that almost 25% of changes in chromatin accessibility happened actually, 25% of all the changes that we observed over that long period of culture were happening in a very specific uh, period of time, between you know about 80 days or so to about 200 or so. And it turns out that when you look at that uh, change, which we called a wave of corticogenesis, uh, we found that indeed it was driven first by transcription factors that control the generation of deep layer neurons, and then in the second part by uh, transcription factors that control the generation of upper layer neurons. So that in itself already spoke to the fact that you can recapitulate many of those aspects. And then the second one was really mapping. You know, uh, what do they, you know, what stage in development do they resemble? And so to do that, we've actually um, used, you know, the primary tissue that we had, but also another four or five databases that were already existent, uh, primarily from PsycheEncode uh, and the ENCODE project, and then put them all together and try to map uh, our cultures over time. And you can actually see a very nice progression over time. And then sometimes around, we now know it's around 280 days. Um, so around 280 days, which is like nine to 10 months of keeping them in the dish they start transitioning to a postnatal signature, hmm. uh, which again speaks to the fact that there's probably some sort of intrinsic program for maturation. So once you do start neural development and corticogenesis in this case, uh, timing tends to be well conserved. And I think that's a great opportunity for really understanding what the mechanisms behind that timing really is, uh, really are. And the same thing we actually saw for astrocytes a few years ago uh, when we compared uh, prenatal and postnatal astrocytes, which are quite different in the cell state with our cultures, and found that indeed after about nine to 10 months, the astrocytes in the cortical organoids starts resembling the postnatal astrocytes rather than the prenatal astrocytes. Mm -hmm. So again, it, obviously that's in the absence of any cues related to birth. It's just, you know, timing 
um, essentially. And so we now know that that is, at this point, we know that it's happening at the RNA level, at the chromatin level, and we have functional um, um, experiments also showing that the characteristics of the cells are changing over time. Wow. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you're going deep on how the pattern gets set up, right? Established and the maturation and, and really, I think, pushing this in vitro system closer to the in vivo reality or the in vivo template there. But you can also go the other way, right? You know, I mean, you study the, the etiology and neurodevelopmental disorders uh, or you look at the system to understand the etiology and mechanisms there behind some of these neurodevelopmental disorders. And there's a lot of facets to that, right? There's a lot of research suggesting it might be environmental influence or maybe, you know, genetic elements to it. But um, then there's on the flip side, you know, there's garden variety brain injury from hypoxia in prematurity. Um, and it's a huge factor. It's a major factor underlying a lot of developmental uh, delay and impairment. And you had a, a nice nature med story about a year ago now that looked at brain injury of immaturity uh, or prematurity. Sorry. Um, can you just elaborate on that and tell us how maybe is it, po is it possible, I guess I would ask, that you can rescue the kind of impairment and development in premature babies? Is that the end game for these kind of studies? Well, so the number of premature births in the United States is very, very high and extreme premature births in particular. Uh, has been increasing. And, and uh, part of the problem there is that the outcomes for many of these premature babies are, are really uh, poor on the long term. Um, and so if, if you think, you know, for, for those babies that are born before 25 weeks of gestation, almost 80% of them have very, very poor neurodevelopmental outcomes. Uh, that comes, you know, that means like seizures, autism spectrum disorders, various other neurodevelopmental conditions. And so you, you may wonder why. Well, uh, a part of the reason is that we've been getting very, very good at keeping these babies alive. And so intensive care has really uh, made incredible advances. Uh, and we can keep these babies alive, although they don't have lungs um, and they don't have mature breathing centers. Um, but you know, these methods are not perfect. And so these babies constantly undergo these episodes of hypoxia that ultimately induce this hypoxic encephalopathy of prematurity. This is happening early as corticogenesis is still progressing. So it's a little bit different than later hypoxic episodes that most often uh, affect oligodendrocytes. But it was unclear, for instance, how do these early episodes of hypoxia um, contribute to the microcephaly that is very often seen in these patients. And so what we did is we took these cultures that at the stage that was similar to the stages where these hypoxic episodes of extreme prematurity take place, and then we just exposed them to low concentrations of oxygen. And But low concentrations of oxygen, it turns out that you have to keep them for about 48 hours in less than 1% oxygen to induce a reliable hypoxia response without killing them, mm. um, right? Because you don't want to like completely destroy the culture. And the surprise was that we, we thought we we're going to see like, you know, just a very broad hypoxic response in all the cells. It turned out that a group of progenitors called intermediate progenitors, which are really important for the expansion of the cerebral cortex, or, you know, their numbers is, is, is greatly increased in primates. Um, and the number of these intermediate progenitors actually dropped after that short episode of hypoxia, while radioglia uh, and even neurons actually were unchanged 
in the total proportion at that stage. And, uh, and so we, we spend a lot of time trying to figure out what was happening. It turns out that they're not dying. They're actually exiting the cell cycle and just becoming premature neurons, but you're depleting the pool of progenitors. And I think the most interesting part of the story came when we started looking more carefully at how this is happening. Because uh, we noticed very early that we were confused about it, um, a strong signature of the unfolded protein response that went up in these cultures. And when we looked, it turned out that the cells were turning the unfolded protein response uh, uh, program. And uh, probably that was the mechanism that was contributing to this exit. And Peter Walter uh, at, at UCSF did a few years ago this incredible screen um, uh, you know, of a very large number of small molecules try to identify one that could restore the unfolded protein response. And the main hit in his um, screen uh, was ISRIP. It's a small molecule uh, that can restore the unfolded protein response uh, very quickly. So when you start using that molecule and you put it in a dish at the same time with hypoxia, what we notice is actually that you can not just prevent the unfolded protein response, which is something that you would expect, but in fact, you can prevent the depletion of this pool of progenitors. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the unfolded protein response is so essential to this process that even in the absence of hypoxia, if you just induce chemically with the drug uh, an unfolded protein response, you can uh, uh, specifically deplete the population of intermediate progenitors, which is really you know, fascinating in a way. But again, it speaks to this, you know, um, interesting cell susceptibility that happens even during this broad, uh, you know, injuries in development. And so uh, ISRIP and derivatives of ISRIP are in clinical trials for other conditions. And so it will be very interesting to see how those are evolving uh, and whether there is a translational uh, opportunity here. Well, Sergio, you're at the perfect place to bridge the gap between basic science and clinical translation, in particular for studying some of these neurodevelopmental disorders. You're, of course, at Stanford University. And full disclosure here, a couple of my stem cell PhD grad school classmates, Rebecca Martin and Tomas Khan, trained in your lab. And also, you know, although Dalen and I aren't neuroscientists, we're not strangers to the breadth and depth of neuroscience research that's going on at Stanford. I've always thought it's the place to train as a neuroscientist, in part because of the faculty there, right? You know, you, you can name folks like Tom Sudoff, Carl Dysroth, Michelle Monnier, Marius Vernig, and heck, even Stanford's president, Mark Tessier-Levine, is a neuroscientist, right? So, but I've always wondered, what where does that legacy of amazing neuroscience come from at Stanford? How did it originate? And for you, what makes it such a great place to do the research that you do? Well, so I, that's a good question. I mean, we're, uh, I don't know, but I mean, I think it, it's not just about neuroscience at Stanford. I think it's, it's across several other fields, right? Like, you know, cancer research as well. Probably it's another example where, um, you have some really amazing scientists. What I can tell you that I, what I think that makes science unique, um, is the fact that, you know, we, you know, I mean, I'm in the medical school, but Really, within walking distance, we have a top engineering school, right? And and we have uh, a top basic science, biology, and chemistry. Again, within really walking distance, and so you have um, you know really a spectacular group of like basic scientists, tool developers, 
um, and a very collaborative environment. It's it's one of the amazing things at Stanford, and now that I've done both my postdoc here as well as having my lab, uh, I can say you know one of the most fun things is you know uh, establishing, starting, and uh, and establishing collaborations at Stanford. So yes, there's a a, a recipe for outsized success at Stanford, but your own recipe is, is very interesting. You got an interesting story of your own um, that's been documented. We read an article about it, talking about your roots in Transylvania. I mean, that's a great start to any story. But really, it's more interesting about, you know, it's it's not a cliche, but it's how you, you find a lot of scientists finding their roots. You know, you had a chemistry set and, you know, one of the first members of your family to attend college or the first uh, and I think maybe, you know, it's a, it's a good story because it's a heartwarming story. People like to see that. They like to see that there's no obstacles to science, that anybody can get into it. But the reality may not be exactly that. I think that you're not maybe the typical example. But we have some, made some pretty big strides in the last few decades in trying to promote that scientists can come from any background, can be anybody. Um, in your view, what's the best way that you can, you know, pay that forward to get the next kid to pick up a chemistry set like you did, especially kids that are kind of not so visible, you know, underrepresented backgrounds, so that they can follow in your footsteps, stand on your shoulders, and, and take this to the next level? Yeah, um, yeah I mean, it, it's true. I mean, it's, it's a longer story, I guess, for another time. Uh, how, um, you know, I got to do science because my interest was initially in doing basic science. Um, and, but the opportunities really in like early post post communist Romania were like very, very limited. And actually they remain to a large extent today. Um, and medical school for me was kind of like the logical next step because it was one of the only places where I thought there was some research happening or taking place. And that obviously, again, was like also quite disappointing, um, right? Because there's only so much research that you can do when there are like no grants. I mean, when I was in medical school, uh, the concept of uh, national grant did not exist in Romania. And most of the experiments that we did were primarily with like, uh, you know, reagents that my professor would buy from her own salary. And so um, sitting there and planning experiments for months because we only had like 50 reactions uh, that we could run uh, was definitely a very helpful, uh, 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 very helpful thing that I've learned. Um, so I, I think, you know, I, I've, I've been trying, one of the things that I've been trying and I, I still try to do, and we'll see how it's going to work. Um, I still think that we need more physicians um, to do basic science. I mean, I think if you look at the statistics today, there's probably only one to 2% of all basic scientists today, of all physicians are actually doing um, um, research. Um, and, and so one of the things that I've been trying to do is even back home, try to convince as many, as many trainees to uh, really uh, give it a try and, and at, at the career in science. And so I, I go often home um, and whenever I go home, um, you know, I usually meet with as many students as I can and then try and actively encourage them to pursue research uh, locally. And, uh, and you know, I've been mentoring many of them, like kind of like at a distance, uh, which is kind of like the best that I can do. And many of them have been coming to the U.S., for instance, and uh, doing their training here or, or spreading throughout Europe. 
which for Romania became much more easier once we became part of the European Union. Um, uh, but I, I think, you know, this, this is still, I think, a big challenge in many countries of the former uh, communist bloc, uh, where research has never really took, uh, uh, you know, never really expanded to the level that we thought it would expand. And, and I think that remains to be seen, like how we're going to solve it moving forward. So from Romania to Palo Alto and more recently back and forth with your trainees, you've certainly come a long way. And, you know, you've been such a staple in our field as a relatively young professor. So, you know, a lot of folks and a lot of trainees and a lot of professors, too, look up to you and admire you for what you've done so far. So thank you so much for joining us here today, Sergio. And before we let you go, we're going to ask you a couple of additional wrap up questions. So starting off. What non-science book are you reading or that you've read recently that's great and that you want to share with our listeners? So one of the best books that I've, uh, uh, I've read recently uh, is by uh, Irv Yalom, who is actually a professor in my department here at Stanford, um, who's been writing like incredible novels. Uh, but he's also, uh, you know, a very important figure in group psychotherapy and existential psychotherapy. Hmm. And so he recently wrote this amazing biography called Becoming Myself, which I very highly uh, uh, recommend. Um, and I highly recommend actually like his, his novels uh, when uh, Nietzsche wept or the Spinoza problem are just like spectacular novels that combine reality uh, with uh, fiction. Um, and yeah, and I, I'm, and I also read a lot of poetry. And so I'm like rediscovering uh, one of my favorite poems, uh, uh, Dana Joya. It's like absolutely spectacular. It has like this uh, short, uh, uh, short volume of 99 poems, which I, I just love. Poetry and neuroscience goes hand in hand, I guess. So, so finally, wrapping things up, uh, what was your greatest or a memorable science revelation or a surprise that really excited you or perhaps even disappointed you um, and that was really kind of instrumental in shaping your scientific career? Yeah. I, don't, I mean, I, I think it's difficult because most of the, I guess, like the discoveries we've been making we're almost like you know sort of like slow processes there were very few times i would say there were like eureka moments uh, it's almost always like a very slow pro uh, process i i do though vividly remember for instance when i did calcium imaging uh for the first time on on human neurons and that was just like extraordinary uh, when I was a postdoc and we were, it was like early days of IPSLs. It was like, you know, I think, uh, Yamanaka just introduced the approach, like I think a year or two before, um, um, everybody was still trying to like derive cells, uh, from, uh, IPSLs and we derived neurons. And I think there were like 40 days or so. And I still remember vividly putting them in the calcium imaging rig and not expecting too much. <laughs> and then when we essentially like turn on the microscope and they're like flickering, I thought it was just like amazing. And I actually had patient cells as well. It had a defect in calcium signaling side by side. Mm. And you could actually see it by eye, like the defect in that calcium handling. And it was like, wow. Um, um, but, and mo mostly, I, I guess like the reason probably I also like remember it, not because it was like so visually appealing, is also because most of my grants and most of my fellowships up to that point 
um, coming from Romania were like mostly uh, criticizing that it would be impossible to capture any phenotypes from those patients once you do the reprogramming and the differentiation. So really being able to see some of those cells flickering and uh, in front of our, uh, in front of my eyes was really, uh, you know, quite memorable. Wow, what an amazing validation and a bit of a F you to those reviewers, I guess. That must have felt really good. But, uh, you know, it's funny because you get all kinds of ahas and some ahas are like, oh, man, I can't imagine what that even means. And then the, the implications kind of trickle down. And then, I mean, I've had a kind of pseudo aha, not to that level where you're just like, oh, my God, like the system works because you're so inured yeah. to the disappointment but not only does yeah. it work, it's working so obviously and it's going to be useful. I can already see the result and the illustration of this patient phenotype. So, yeah, aha doesn't have to be like something that you didn't expect to happen. It's just I guess sometimes it just feels so good to get a positive result. Right. Yeah. Which is rare in science. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well. that's the most important thing, right, that you learn as a scientist that the majority of experiments do fail. That's right. And I think like once you kind of like accept that, like everything is so much easier. Right, right. And every positive one is such a, a great uh, motivation towards uh, all the future experiments. Although you wouldn't know that most experiments fail to look at your record, my friend. You've been very productive at the highest level. We want to thank you for sharing with us today all your previous stories. And I know you've probably got one on deck pretty soon. So we'll have to have you back pretty soon. Uh, to talk about that, if you will. Thanks for uh, talking to us for this episode. This has really been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been really a great pleasure. Thank you. All right, you guys, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at stemcellpodcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Thank you guys so much for joining us for this episode with Sergio Pasca. It was a great chat, fascinating individual with an interesting story coming all the way from Transylvania into your ears. Join us in the next couple of weeks for our next episode, guys. Thanks again. Thanks again.